Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Coming up, the government under fire over new international travel measures, fresh doubt over vaccine for all by September, as EU AstraZeneca row rumbles on. And could a zero COVID policy save our summer and avoid further lockdowns? Tonishta Leo Varadkar is with us in studio. And later in the programme, Virgin Media News reporter Zara King meets the people and healthcare workers behind the numbers with an exclusive report from inside St. Vincent's University Hospital's ICU. When I came in, they said I had the virus. Okay. And I was in, I've been in bed ever since. Okay. I've been on different medicine and different things like that, and no energy most of the time. Plus, how will new mandatory quarantine measures be policed, as Gardaí call for clarity and priority when it comes to vaccines? Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. And our first guest this evening is Thonishta, a Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment, Leo Varadkar. Thank you very much, Thonishta, for Thanks, being Matt. with us on the programme. I want to ask you about the vaccines. How worried are you by this row between the EU and AstraZeneca as to how much damage it might do to your plans for vaccine rollout? Um, well, you know, it's certainly a setback. Uh, we had anticipated that we would have 1.4 million doses in the first quarter of this year, um, you know, between now and, uh, and the end of March. Um, if they don't deliver, or if they do what they're saying they're going to do, we'll only have 1.1 million doses. So going down from 1.4 uh, to 1.1. Um, but that would still allow us to do what we're doing, you know, nursing home residents and staff first, um, frontline healthcare workers second. That's very much underway. And we'd still be able to start on the over 85s from the second week uh, of February. But we would fall behind. Um, but that's not... Yet set in stone, the European Commission is still engaging with AstraZeneca, a very hard line coming from the European Commission that we expect them to honour their contract. Um, but it is a setback, but not a disaster because, you know, the real ramp up in supply happens uh, around April and May. And like I said, we'll have somewhere between 1.1 and 1.4 million doses in the entire first quarter of this year. But in April and May, we'd expect to have more than a million doses a month. Um, maybe as many as 2 million doses in May. So that's really when things ramp up and we're preparing for that now, uh, you know, with eight mass vaccination centres planned around the country, local vaccination centre centres, um, contracts with GPs and pharmacists, all of that getting ready for the inevitable. You know, it's a bit like the, the bus, you know, come, it doesn't, it doesn't come the, along and then, then four the come along together. Did the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, overpromise when he said... Firstly, he said in the dial last week that everybody would be vaccinated by September. Then it had to be clarified that he meant all adults. But now today he's rowing back on that. 
And it's not clear that everybody is going to be vaccinated by September, is it? Well, I think if you take the totality of what he said, um, he did caveat it. You know, there are factors out of our control. Um, the approval of vaccines is decided by the European Medicines Agency and we're relying on the companies to deliver in terms of supply. He's saying that? No, he wasn't saying that last uh, no, week. I, I mean, has I, he I think not overpromised in relation to this? Um, I think in fairness he did, but, you know, we can go back over that. Uh, I, I, I think there's a very good it's very high probability that by September we'll be able to offer the vaccine to every adult. Um, but it does depend on on approvals. You know, we'll see on Friday whether the EMA approves AstraZeneca. I think they will. And then there's a Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is a single dose vaccine. And that could really help if that becomes available. But what we can be confident of is that the uh, Pfizer supply will continue to increase. The Moderna supply will continue to increase. Um, this year, or this week alone, about 50,000 people vaccinated, which isn't bad going. And is it true you told your parliamentary party tonight that by June or July, people will be able to book their vaccination? Um, the current plan, um, subject to all of the caveats, uh, which I mentioned already, uh, is that in the second quarter of the year, that's the real ramp up phase um, when we're getting through more of those priority groups. But we would anticipate being at the point um, in sort of June, July, August, where it'll be what they call open access. Uh, so it'll be provided by GPs, by pharmacists in the vaccination centres. And that's kind of a case then of, of you know, booking your appointment and booking your time. So that's all things going to plan. There are caveats. There are caveats. Now, do we need perhaps a specific minister in responsibility for this? Because you know as a former minister for health mm. that even in the best of times, it's an enormous job, which is an incredible challenge. These are far from the best of times. Would it not make more sense to have a dedicated minister to deal with this, allowing the Minister for Health to deal with the services in the hospitals in dealing with the crisis? Yeah, well, you know, I also know that just having a minister for something doesn't necessarily um, uh, solve, the, uh, uh, solve the problem. Um, but it does and, uh, look for accountability, doesn't it, and responsibility yeah. for possibly mm -hmm. the most important thing that has to be done this year. Well, the minister who is, who is politically responsible for this is the Minister of Health, Minister Donnelly, and the HSE, of course, uh, is the... Um, but might uh, it not be agency. too much for one man? Um, you know, I think at this stage... Um, things are going well, uh, or as well as they could be. I don't think there's any deficiency in Minister Donnelly in that regard. You know, the fact that we're doing much better than most of the European countries um, in terms of the vaccine rollout, the fact that Europe is going slower than the UK or the US is not down to Minister Donnelly. Okay, and how are you going to maintain public confidence, though, in a situation whereby there are changes occasionally in the message? The message has changed in the last week, partially due to circumstances outside your control. But the, the promises were made before the EU had even authorised the use of this particular vaccine. Well, you know, I suppose I just ask people to bear with us. Uh, it's an extraordinary um, miracle of uh, science and commerce that a vaccine to a virus that's only been around for a year has already been identified that there are um, several vaccines um, coming online uh, and the initial data from countries where it's being used, um, Israel, for example, a lot of interesting data from there uh, shows that it is very effective and effective against the variants too. So um, what I would say to people is um, certainly the Taoiseach uh, and others and I have always been very clear that um, the initial rollout would be, would be slow. Uh, the first couple of months will be slow, but it will ramp up. And, and the criticism we're probably going to face, um, to be frank with you, Matt, in, in April or May is um, why are these fridges full of vaccines uh, and why aren't you getting them out to us? Because that's the problem that could potentially arise. And that's what we're working towards, making sure we're ready for that. Well, in the meantime, while people are waiting for the vaccines, they're worried about the continuing high number of cases and the hospital admissions. And they're furious at the idea of people being out of the country, coming back in, perhaps bringing the illness with them. 
And I think maybe that you're being a bit soft on the issue of people coming back into the country. Why not have an effective stick of saying anyone flying into the country at present should have mandatory quarantine for two weeks? Well, you, you know, I, I totally understand how people feel. Um, you know, there are about 500,000 people on the pandemic unemployment payment, um, many who haven't worked uh, in a year. Um, and there are a huge number of people who have seen their freedoms enormously restricted. And then there are 3,000 families who are grieving a loss. Uh, so I totally understand um, how people feel. Um, the measures that we have brought in or are bringing in are now very significant. Um, foreign travel is down to a fraction of what it was. It's down by about 95%. Anyone coming into the country now has to have a negative PCR test. Uh, and anyone who does come into the country, most people coming into the country are Irish, by the way, they're Irish residents and citizens, um, who don't have a negative test uh, will be subject to mandatory hotel quarantine. And people coming in from high-risk countries uh, such as Brazil and uh, South America will be subject to mandatory we, hotel we have quarantine. A situation and, where... and by the way, um, I think people should expect that that will be extended to more countries and more groups as we go on. But this is going to take uh, a few weeks to operationalize. It, you know, some of it kicks in from, from tonight, like the, like the visa restrictions on South American citizens and South African and just citizens. Just clarify, for Irish citizens coming back into the country, if they don't have uh, the, the required PCR mm. test findings, Will they be sent to a hotel rather than being allowed to go home and quarantine in their homes? Um, yes, but not initially, because we need primary legislation to do that. Uh, so under the current law, we can impose that on people who are not EEA citizens. Um, we can't do that under the current law, so we will need to pass and a law probably next week. And how quickly will that be done? Because we have a situation where it was disclosed tonight that just under 400 people came back into Dublin Airport yesterday, coming back from their holidays and sunspots. Yeah, and that, by the way, is, is already against the law um, because... Uh, so what punishment are they going to get for that? Uh, unfortunately, the punishment at the moment is is very weak. Um, you know, it's the same as breaking the five kilometre rule. You know, if you go for exercise more than five kilometres from your house, um, it's a fine of 100 euros. That's not good enough. Uh, so we intend to bring in tougher penalties as well. Why did you not anticipate that, that there were people going to go away on holidays over Christmas and in January, be it to the ski slopes or be it to sunspots, and be ready to deal with them? Well, you know, I suppose because we're dealing with lots of different things, um, you know, the emergence of, of variants as an issue really wasn't an issue until the week before Christmas. Um, and that does change the picture in relation to the risk when it comes to uh, international travel. And that's why I, I anticipate that as we uh, get this done over the next few weeks, as we put in the laws, the enforcement mechanisms, um, get some hotels under our control, that you will see more and more groups of people um, being required to quarantine in a hotel. Yeah, but as who's going to enforce all this? Because the Gardaí don't seem particularly happy about what they've been required to do or the instructions that they're getting to do it. Yeah, well, what the Gardaí need is, is legislation. They need a clear law and then they need guidelines and operating procedures flowing from that. Uh, so there is engagement uh, between the Department of Justice and the Gardaí Commissioner on that. I appreciate that some of the Gardaí representative organisations haven't been consulted yet, but that's a different thing. You know, management will consult them uh, when we have this, um, uh, this done clearly. But there is one thing I think that, that is really important to say, and this is something that you know, Tony Hill, the CMO, said to me, something members of NEFLA said to me, um, yes, international travel is a concern. It is a risk. Uh, we do need to restrict it and restrict it more, and we will, and we are. Um, however, we need to not send out the message that this is the main reason uh, as to why we are in the situation we're in, or that uh, restricting international travel is a silver bullet, because then people might stop doing the things that we really need them to do. And that is, you know, <laughs> to stay at home, uh, if at all possible. And if you do go out, make sure that you cover your face, wash your hands, keep a space from other people, and also need to concentrate on issues such as uh, hospital-acquired infections in hospitals, uh, which is a real problem and too. And we will get back so to that So we don't want, you know, it is important that we not, we not 
fixate yeah, on, but on one aspect. Yeah, but there is one other thing I want to ask you in relation. You have sort of indicated that you don't expect people to be going on foreign holidays this year. Mm. There's an enormous amount of people. I think it's estimated something like 400,000 people may have bookings rolled over from last year, flights or holiday accommodation, yeah. whatever. And are you going to give them a formal instruction not to go on holidays so that they will be in a position to recoup their money or have it rolled over again without losing out? If, if we get to that space, um, you know, I, I think I'm, I don't like to be the one to break the bad news, but I think it's very unlikely that people will be able to go on, on, on foreign holidays this summer, even if the vaccines turn out to be uh, as effective as we hope they can be. But why not have the vaccines and if half the population is vaccinated by the summer, why not be able to yeah, go um, we, We're learning all the time and maybe things will change. Uh, but uh, at the moment, it's estimated that to secure herd immunity, you probably need to vaccinate maybe 70 or 80% of the population. And then also bear in mind, uh, just having the vaccine doesn't necessarily mean uh, the vaccine stops you getting sick. Um, it's still very possible that you could be carrying it in your nose and because you're not sick, you're spreading it. Uh, and but the point but this will become clear in the next people, few months. As I said, 400,000 people who may already have booked for this mm. year, will you issue an instruction that they're not to travel to allow them to claim insurance or to be able to argue with their airlines or others that their money should be refunded or their holiday rolled over to 2022? Yeah, well, 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 the, the short answer is yes, um, but the long answer is sometimes it's more complicated than that because it depends on the contract that people may have and so on. Um, but under level five, it's very clear. Like under level five, you're only allowed to go, uh, you only have to leave your home for certain things. Um, and one of them is not a foreign holiday. So it's already against the law for people uh, to do that. Uh, yes, we appreciate that it has to be enforced, one for public health reasons, and one because it's really undermining the message okay. for people who are staying at home, who are doing all the right things and they see other people not doing it. That five kilometre rule should also mean that most people wouldn't be considering crossing the border into the north. Mm. But what about people coming down north into the south? What does it say about the toxicity of politics on a north-south basis that there's been a failure over the last 12 months to have a coordinated north-south strategy to fight this illness together? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think it's unfortunate that that hasn't happened. We do have a memorandum of understanding. Um, one of the decisions we made as a government this week was to use, to pick March the 5th as the date for um, the next set of changes because we decided that we should align with Northern Ireland. Um, but, you know, the situation is, is that um, uh, Northern Ireland is autonomous. Uh, there's a power-sharing executive there led by Sinn Féin and the DUP. Um, they haven't been able to come together um, to make... They haven't been able to come together, but you haven't been able to come together with the Northern executive either. There are difficulties there. I mean, how can that be that when you have a public health emergency that the old toxic hmm. politics still seem to predominate? Well, you know, I think that's probably probably more of a question for, for Sinn Féin, the DUP and the parties that, that are there. You know, I heard Mary Lou Macdonald, the president of Sinn Féin the other day, saying that the government should use our influence to bring about an all-island strategy. You know, they're in government in Ireland. In fact, they've been in government um, in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, for 13 of the last 20 years. It's up to, you know, we really rely on them to use their influence to convince their own coalition, which they co-lead, uh, to um, do the kind of things that we're doing. And unfortunately, if they can't, then they can't. But um, well, I'll put perhaps that to a better Lou chance. McDonald tomorrow night when yeah, she's joining and, us and on the And the other thing you, you might put to her is the, the latest Republican funeral, um, you know, attended by... Um, but by Sinn Féin councillors, you know, again, sending out all the wrong messages in Northern Ireland and further toxifying that relationship between Sinn Féin we'll and We'll address DUP. that tomorrow evening. But there's a lot of people who think that the new measures that you have just don't go far enough, that we should be going for a zero COVID strategy, that we should be trying to emulate countries like New Zealand. Given that things have changed so much over the last 10, 11 months, given that the strategy 
didn't work and we are where we are now, why not go for something that you had previously rejected? Okay, well, th there's no strategy that I would dismiss uh, and no proposal that the government will not consider. Uh, there are so many things we've done in the past year that we never thought we'd do. Uh, so we always have to keep an open mind on these things. Um, uh, you know, one of the things I, I would say, though, about, about zero COVID, uh, it's as much a slogan uh, as it is a strategy. When you talk to people about it, you hear different things as to what it means. So you might talk to one person who's an advocate for it, and they would say what it means is a very hard lockdown until you get 14 consecutive days uh, of no community transmission. You talk to somebody else and they say zero COVID means you don't even have to get to zero at all. You know, you just have to introduce all the measures that you could to try to. Uh, and if you look at what's being proposed, um, it's a mix of things. Uh, some I totally agree with that make a lot of sense. Uh, some I'd be more sceptical of, like having hard borders between counties and things like that. But 100,000 deaths in the UK, 3,000 deaths mm. in Ireland, 25 deaths in New Zealand. Doesn't that suggest we should be trying to do an awful lot more of what they do in New Zealand? I think there are things, uh, you know, I, I think a comparison with New Zealand is not a hugely helpful one. Why not? Um, first of all, they're not at the epicentre of um, the pandemic in the way we are. I actually discussed this with the CMO and Professor Nolan at our last Cabinet Subcommittee meeting, and the things they would point to is the fact that we're at the epicentre of the uh, pandemic here in Western Europe, not in a part of the world where COVID is, is, is not as prevalent. Uh, also, there are some real complications. You know, there's the issue that we have um, in not being, um, um, in having land borders with another country. Um, most of the countries that have, that have done zero very successfully, um, even though a lot of them don't use that term, by the way. Um, uh, they use other terms like maximum suppression, for example, um, and would reject uh, the use of terms like elimination. But um, uh, other countries that have done successfully tend to, to not have a land border with another country. An exception is um, South, South Korea, for example. Is that the strongest arguments that has ever been put forward for a united Ireland? That it absolutely is a nonsense that we have a situation on this island that facing a major health pandemic we haven't been able to deal with it properly because of having two separate political jurisdictions refusing to cooperate fully with each other. I, I think it's certainly part of a case for uh, a united Ireland, but I wouldn't make the mistake of thinking um, that being one uh, state means that you don't have different um, uh, jurisdictions. Um, the German lender in Germany, 17 of them do different things. Scotland is doing something different to England. What there might equally be a, be a case for, and you know, I, I would see a lot of attraction in this, uh, is a, um, a two-island strategy. Um, the, UK, or the UK and Ireland working together, allowing us to bypass the political issues in the north. Um, and, uh, and is that going to be possible after Britain having left the European Union? Well, it makes it makes a lot harder because, you know, we're in a complicated situation where we have a land border with Northern Ireland. We're part of a common travel area with all of the UK and we're also European citizens and European citizens have certain rights, including um, freedom of movement, not un unfettered freedom of mo movement, uh, but freedom of movement nonetheless. Uh, and one thing we're going to have to uh, one thing that may happen on a European level, you know, I wouldn't rule out, for example, uh, at a European level where we ban travel uh, from outside the EU into the EU, and that is where we'd need to be using the hotel quarantine. But we have to build up that capacity. We don't have it yet. Okay. We can build it up quite quickly. I think an awful lot of people don't expect at this stage that the restrictions will change much, if at all, on the 5th of March. Although I believe you also told your parliamentary party tonight about a level four or level four mm. plus being a possibility from the 5th of March. But what are going to be the criteria for changing the restrictions in future? Are they going to be set by dates or is it going to be numbers of confirmed cases, mm. numbers in hospitals, numbers in ICUs? Yeah, you know, if you look at the, uh, the plan for living with COVID, um, there's a matrix in the back of that, which... Uh, 
gives you um, the indicators that we use um, to move from different levels. They're not exact numbers, but they are, um, you know, particular metrics that we will look at. Sorry, so that is that include... still relevant, that plan, given that we have a situation where we have more confirmed cases of COVID this month alone than we had in all of 2020? Is that plan still relevant or does it need to be reworked? Um, it, of course, it needs to be reworked and updated, but it's still relevant. Um, level five uh, is working. Um, you know, we saw cases uh, reach um, six, 7,000 a day. We're now down around 1,000 a day. Uh, so, you know, it's clear that the level five restrictions uh, have worked. Um, um, what didn't work was moving from level five to three. And I don't think uh, government would do that again. So uh, the likelihood is that we'll move from level five to level four uh, on the 5th of March. But the, the, the criteria we'll be looking at, it's not as simple as the date. The criteria we'll look at is the number of cases, you know, the five or seven day average in terms of cases. The numbers in ICU is really important. You know, cases could be going down, but there could still be a lot of people in ICU and people working in our ICUs in critical care under huge pressure. We need to make sure that we don't um, and we get those numbers down low. And we report we have um, in a few moments And ago. another thing we'd have to look at as well is what percentage of people are vaccinated because that does change the picture. And finally then, what about economic considerations? Because you are Minister of mm -hmm. Responsibility for Business. This would suggest, I mean, yo-yo lockdowns seem to be an absolute death knell for many businesses. I mean, how committed are you now to continuing to give as much money as possible to businesses that you've required to shut down as a public health measure? Yeah, you know, we'll continue with the wage subsidy scheme uh, to help pay the wages and we'll continue with the weekly cruise payment to help with fixed costs uh, for so long as that is necessary. And, you know, when I talk to business, when I talk to people who are out of work, um, you know, they don't want yo-yo lockdowns either. You, you know, they want to know that if they're going back, they're going to go back for a prolonged period. But it would be dishonest to say to anyone that um, there's any strategy that totally avoids yo-yo lockdowns. You know, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Seoul have all had to have second and third lockdowns in some cases. So it's possible we could end up with a fourth lockdown once we get out of this one? There's absolutely nobody uh, who can um, guarantee that. You know, we've just seen a case, for example, um, uh, of the South African variant uh, in Auckland and New Zealand. Thankfully, that has not precipitated um, a new lockdown of the North Island of New Zealand yet, but they can't rule it out, out either. So like anyone who comes into your uh, studio and makes this promise that if you only adopt this strategy, um, the summer is going to be great. You know, we can save the summer. Uh, we can all attend concerts and barbecues and there's no risk of a, of a new lockdown. That's not true. I, I love it, but it's not true. Thank you very much, Thonishta Leo Varadkar, for joining us this evening here on The Tonight Show. Now, after the break, hospitals across the country have been facing a COVID nightmare, especially in intensive care units. In this special report, Virgin Media News reporter Zara King talks to healthcare workers on the front line and meets the people behind the patient numbers. Yeah, at first it's very awkward. Yeah. Because it's like you are very big. Yeah? You are uh, inside, dropped inside, uh, you know, a place where... You are gasping for breath. Yeah. I'm breathless, really. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Now, this evening, St. Vincent's University Hospital is dealing with the highest number of COVID patients in the country. In this exclusive report, Virgin Media News reporter Zara King met the patients and healthcare workers behind the facts and figures. <laughs> the first few nights was very bad. I thought I didn't Vasile is a 32-year-old bus driver. On Friday morning, he tested positive for COVID-19. By Friday afternoon, he was admitted to St. Vincent's University Hospital, struggling to breathe. Infection prevention and control measures mean we weren't allowed access into the COVID ward. Instead, consultant Owen Feeney offered to take our camera inside, hearing first-hand accounts from patients who wanted to tell their story. Peter Doyle from Rathdrum in County Wicklow has been on the COVID ward for almost 10 days. When I came in, they said I had the virus. And I was, I've been in bed ever since. Okay. I've been on different medicine and different things like that. No energy most of the time. A couple of nights before I came into the hospital, I had to be helped up the stairs. I wasn't able to move up the stairs. The numbers in hospitals are still remain very, very high and it has pressures on not only our COVID-19 provision of services, but it's also having knock-on pressures on our non-COVID-19 services. I think one thing anecdotally I'm seeing is I'm seeing a lot more infections in, in households, uh, whereas previously in March and April, maybe one or two people in the house would have uh, contracted COVID-19. Now, for the most part, when one patient attends here who has COVID-19, the vast majority of, house, of the household also has it as well. Downstairs at the emergency department, patients continue to arrive, making their way through the COVID and non-COVID pathways. Ireland has seen more confirmed cases of the virus in January than it did in the whole of 2020. Running the ED is consultant John Ryan. He and his team have seen hundreds of patients coming through the doors since Christmas. Dr Ryan warns that Covid patients are presenting sicker and staying for longer. The hospital is, you know, if you like, coin a phrase, in the eye of the storm. And we're two weeks behind what's happening in the community. So when people got really sick in the community about two weeks ago, now they come to hospital even sicker. Uh, and and uh, they, if they're admitted to hospital, they stay longer. If uh, they get very sick in the hospital and they have to go to intensive care, they stay even longer still. 63-year-old Elanita is a frontline nurse working in a nursing home. She was admitted to Vincent's by ambulance after her oxygen levels dropped below 75%. Yeah, this is the... Uh, positive air pressure okay. to help me breathe easily. What does it feel like to you? Yeah, at first it's very awkward yeah. because it's like you are very big. Yeah? Okay. You are uh, inside, trapped inside uh, you know, a place where you are gasping for breath. 
Yeah. I'm breathless, really. The current pressure on Ireland's health service is sometimes difficult to explain. Words like critical and serious have at times lost their meaning during what has been an almost year-long emergency. Rachel McCann is an infectious diseases registrar. She was travelling through South America when news of the pandemic broke. Within days, Dr McCann had booked a flight home to join the front line. Normal day starts around 8am. Um, we go through any events that might have happened overnight, catch up with the night team um, and also then address the day-to-day communications with family and that's what we've learned is one of the most important things with COVID-19, particularly in the care we're giving in, the, in St Monica's ward where families can't come in and can't see their loved ones for long periods of time. Yeah, that must be very difficult. I suppose you're obviously trying to communicate with families over the phone. Yeah, and that's something we bear in mind even more so now because of the fact of um, restrictions with families. Um, And families are very appreciative of that communication and they're very open to the phone calls and the information we give them, which has been very good. So I think everyone has a good understanding then um, of the difficulties that we face and their families face. The HSE chief executive describes the pressure on the system as unrelenting. Paul Reid acknowledging that the long-term impact on frontline staff remains unknown. It's a very significant levels of strain and demand on our staff and I'm always very conscious of it. You know, we're conscious about our mental health, our physical health uh, and we do try to rotate staff as much as we possibly can. Uh, but our commitment just has to be hugely commended to what they've done uh, through all these waves and phases of the COVID virus. Anita says her priority right now is to get better so she can return to the front line. Waiting at home is Vasile's wife, who is now also COVID positive, and their seven-month-old baby, who is well. These are the people behind the daily case numbers who find themselves at the centre of Ireland's biggest COVID surge. Tonight, they remain in hospital, receiving high-level care. That report by Zara King and some sobering and scary stuff in it indeed. Well, we're joined now via Skype by Dr Owen Feeney, who you saw earlier there, consultant in infectious diseases at St Vincent's University Hospital. And here in studio by Liam Doran, former General Secretary of the INMO. I have to say, I noticed you were shaking your head at times while watching. What in particular made you shake your head? Did anyone... <laughs> I don't get any sense that the frontline staff have really had tangible recognition of the intolerable pressures they've had to carry for the last 10 months. I think a lot of, too too many people in positions of authority have spoken nice words about them, but they need help. They need tangible help, commitments about leave entitlements. They need, they really need help. They need to sense that when they come out of this in one piece, it will be tangibly recognised because they are being asked to do the impossible. We started off facing this crisis with too few ICU beds and much too few ICU nurses. So we've had those people try to carry excessive workloads. They've had to try and orientate colleagues brought in at short notice, redeployed and so on. And everyone in ICU is very ill. And it's just a tangible recognition. And I, I sense a lot of soft words. I don't sense tangible actions that will support people as we try and to work out of this. after the first initial surge, how well was it done within the hospital system to put in additional ICU beds and train additional people to be ready for this particular surge, which in many respects was almost quite inevitable? Well, it's, it, Matt, without being simplistic about it, we couldn't rectify the failings of the last 10 years 
in six or eight or 10 weeks last June, July and August, September. We couldn't. We came into this with too few beds, too few staff. We've had to try to surge up in terms of converting what are not ICU beds into sort of sister ICU beds. We've had to redeploy nursing staff from other areas. The, in the, the intensive care course is 12 months long in most. It's a diploma course, it's a graduate course and so on. People haven't had a chance to do that. We never encourage them to do that in, in, in previous years. So it really hasn't been a situation where you can talk about extra ICU beds, but it isn't just extra ICU beds. For every ICU bed, you need about six staff, six nursing staff to staff at 24 seven. We haven't had any efforts made to train up that number of staff, which meant a depleted number of staff who've also got COVID, we've had absenteeism, and that depleted number of staff are having to look after very sick patients for a prolonged period, and they are extremely tired. But they won't, they'll never drop the ball and they'll never give up, but they're extremely tired. Let me go to Dr Owen Feeney on that point about the mental and physical, psychological tiredness of the staff. How tough is it for everybody? I think it's been very tough, Matt. I think that the issues we've been seeing among staff have led to huge pressures, uh, you know, for them psychologically and physically. What you're seeing there in Monica's ward is a very warm, hot environment for patient, for staff to be wearing PPE. And it's essentially what Liam has described there. It's a, it's a sister ICU. It used, it's, it's a kind of a lower acuity area where patients can get non-invasive ventilation, um, which is a tight mask like Elanita was showing you there and high flow oxygen but it wasn't meant to be this area. So we've trained people up, we've trained our staff up, but it's put them under huge pressures. I think a lot of people at home might also have been surprised to see such young people in that particular report, 32 year old man with a seven month old baby at home. Has this become more noticeable as well that this is not an illness that just affects older people? Absolutely. We've seen a lot more younger people. I think it's just an effect of the numbers of infections we're seeing in the community with these massive uh, numbers that we've seen, unfortunately, in January, we're seeing more and more younger people presenting and requiring higher levels of care. Now, obviously, the vast majority of younger people who contract this virus, in fact, the vast majority of all patients who contract this virus, thankfully, have a relatively mild course or even an asymptomatic course. But when you're seeing thousands of infections in the community, every day, you're going to see younger people presenting unwell. Do you feel though that with the experience that you've had over the last year, that you're better placed to actually treat people, that you understand better the medications required and the uh, type of medical support? We definitely learned a lot from the first wave and we more learned what didn't work than what does work as well. We know steroids work, but the antiviral treatments have been disappointment. Um, we've seen our surge capacity used, as Liam has outlined there, and we've had to build through that and have our plans ready. But I would echo exactly what he said about the fact that we don't have enough ICU beds and it's not something that can be solved overnight. Um, the main issue is around staffing, around skilled doctors and skilled nurses being ready to provide the care for these beds. You can't just have beds, you need the staffing present. And this is something that we've known about in Ireland for many years. 
But Liam, does any European country actually have sufficient resources to deal with what's happening? We remember from nearly a year ago the pictures in Italy as they struggled to deal with it all. Are we really doing much worse in Ireland than anywhere else? I think that's, that's, that's a, a fair point. I mean, what's happening at the moment is unprecedented on all health systems. The problem for ourselves was that we started from such a low base in this specialised area. Five to six beds per thousand population ICU. I think Germany is 29. Uh, Britain is 10 and a half, 11. So we were trying to, as it were, surge up and try to redeploy staff, which adds pressure upon pressure because all the people coming in, as Owen said, are very ill and there's no telling who's going to get very ill and who's not going to get very ill. So I think all health systems have been challenged, absolutely all health systems. But I suppose I'd be passionate about the Irish public health system. It was starting from a base of too few acute beds, too few intensive care beds, too few staff, and yet it's been asked and to yet work miracles. People would point out that an awful lot of money, one of the highest spending per head of population in Europe, was spent on the health system. 22 billion will be spent this year. Would you have hoped that a new head of the Department of Health, Secretary General Robert Watt, a man who has a reputation for cutting in the Department of Public Expenditure, is the type of person who might go in and get value for money and get better systems in place so that the money can go into proper healthcare? Well, that, that question comes with the suggestion that we weren't getting value for money. I mean, I'd be passionate about the Public Health Service saying it has given value for money every day of every month of every year for the last 15, 20 years on the backs of the, public, of the staff in it not by the management or the political decisions that surrounded it. We had savage cuts in our health system in 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. We had no recruiting from 11 through to 15 of nurses. And then somebody said that wasn't going to harm the health system, that it was okay, that suddenly, you know, there was always some excuse given to say we could get through. We can't get through. We're now reaping the harvest of that neglect. Would you be hopeful neglect. so that Robert Watt who was in the Department of Public Expenditure, will now, if he takes up the job at 291,000 a year, will de de deliver value for money in his role. Well, don't tell any nurse in the front line tonight that Robert Watton, the Secretary General of the Department of Health, without personalised getting 291,000 a they year. Know. They probably do know. Robert will have a, a shock if he has to spend money because he's had a, 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 a habit of, of not spending it. But it isn't about just spending the money. You can't turn on the tap in the health system in suddenly in 2020 our 21 and welcome the extra expense. We're promising 4,000 nurses this year to grow on a health system. I welcome that, I pray for that, but where are we going to get them around the globe where all English speaking countries are short nurses? Okay, I'm gonna leave the last word though to Dr. Owen Feeney. I mean, do you have hope and positivity for us? Do you think that maybe this may be that we have seen the worst and it gets better from here? I would definitely hope so. We are seeing promising figures in the community. It's great to have the vaccines rolling out for healthcare workers and for nursing home residents. We're beginning to see a fall off in our hospital numbers, but this, we're still very busy. I think what we would really like is um, for this never to happen again or not to happen to the same extent. I, I think we're all quite disappointed that we're back in a situation like this after what we've been through previously in March and April last year. Thank you very much, Dr. Owen Feeney, and look after yourself. Liam Doran, thank you very much for being with us on the programme. After the break, how will Guardian enforce new mandatory quarantine measures and doubt cast over the vaccine rollout as the Health Minister rolls back on the promise to vaccinate all adults by September? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back. Well, we're joined in the studio by pharmacist and former TD Kate O'Connell and via Skype by the Vice President of the Garda Representative Association, Brendan O'Connor. Brendan, I'm going to start with you. How are you going to implement these enhanced lockdown rules, particularly if you're required to go to people's houses to see if they're doing the mandatory quarantine? Well, Matt, I suppose the first thing I'd say is we don't actually know at this stage because we have no clarity in what will be expected of our members. So we will be asking the first thing we need is clarity. Currently, the Constitution makes someone's home protected, so it's very unlikely that we will be entering anyone's home or anyone's temporary home, whether it be hotel room, unless there is new legislation put on the books. So certainly we are as confused as anyone as to what we will be doing. Now, if people are compliant and can communicate with us without us actually crossing the threshold, that won't present any difficulties. But as ever with any sort of law enforcement or policing, if people aren't cooperative, it will present huge difficulties and, of course, increased risks to our members. Of course, the risks are many. Where do you stand in relation to getting the vaccine as a protection? When are you due to get it? Well, at the moment... Uh, we are put in a group which of um, key workers, which is very vague. We don't know exactly where we are in that queue. The last thing we want to do is be seen to be trying to push our way forward, but we certainly feel that the unique circumstances and job that our members do put us at an increased risk, and we think that should be recognised that we are critical workers. So we're looking for early vaccines. And I suppose what has been announced in the last couple of days, which showed that the, the, the position that our members are in and, and the role we're playing in the state's efforts shows that we are actually at an increased risk and probably not far behind healthcare workers in the fact that we will be going into environments, we'll be interacting with people who are self-isolating or travelling and it would certainly be people that are perceived to be at slightly higher risk. So again, our members, we believe, should be given access to vaccines. And also on top of that, What's very evident going forward is that COVID is here for the medium term and our members are very much part of the plan. So the absenteeism we're witnessing at the minute is a problem going forward. So we need to invest in our people. At a time like this, we'd be calling for additional resources normally, but we have a finite resource of people who are our biggest asset and it's about protecting them and ensuring that they are available for frontline duties to protect the community. Okay. And it makes total sense to us that we get access to vaccination. One final thing to you, there's been a lot of calls for sealing the border. And if that can't happen, the government is saying that there will be additional patrols on this side of the border at least. But how well is that likely to work? Well, Matt, the question again comes the word additional being used. I mean, we have, as I say, a finite number of people. And our people have been on the front line since last March. Long no access to leave, no breaks, and huge ideas. So it's just okay. I think we're going to have to leave that. Unfortunately, so the line actually, is breaking up you know, on us. 
Brendan O'Connor from the GRA, thank you very much for joining us on Donegal this evening. Well, we're joined now in the studio by former Fine Gael TD and pharmacist Kate O'Connell. I believe you're one of the people who believes in a zero COVID strategy, which Leo Varankar earlier just described as a bit of a slogan. Well, I mean, um, I believe in trying to have a zero COVID. I believe that it's a point we be, should be trying to get to. Um, lately, I suppose, the, the narrative around in the last few days only about zero COVID has become a little bit but like Brexit. It's starting to mean whatever you want it to mean. Um, from listening to the experts, um, what, I, what I see as a zero COVID is where you go and approach, where you suppress a virus within a community that you know, Ireland, and you avoid... Um, introducing more infection. And the whole point is that you, you know exactly how many cases you have, you get them down to a tiny level, and um, you know where they are, and you halt the virus in its path, and therefore you protect people as well as the services. What I think the approach now is going to lead to is more rolling lockdowns. And what comes before a lockdown are the scenes that we saw on the VT earlier and what we saw in the community in the week after Christmas. We see an increasing burden of disease, increasing hospitalisations, pressures on ICU, tragedy, misery and um, work, huge work on behalf of our frontline workers. Um, Dr Feeney said in his piece that he didn't want to go through what they're going through now again. And as far as I'm concerned, the approach of not suppressing this virus down to zero is ultimately going to lead but to another surge. But is that surge. actually possible to achieve? Of course it is possible. Um, I said it before, the time for can't is over. This is too serious. The minute this seeds, it spreads. If you have the emergence of variants, it's only over a month since the, since the dangerous variants or the more and um, the South African, the, in the UK and the Brazilian variants have emerged as a problem. Nothing is to say that another three variants aren't going to emerge in the next four weeks. And while you have a burden of disease in the community that's high, there's always the likelihood of more variants emerging. So it's really important that if you look at the community as a herd and the people as a herd, that you, you use vaccines um, as, a, as a management tool, but not as a treatment. They're only part of the solution. And I fear that there's too much focus being put on vaccines when really there's a huge behavioural piece and a huge piece when it comes to suppressing the virus. Rule 101 of pandemics is to shut down your borders. This is about containment. We've, we're a year in now and the solution hasn't been found in the strategy that has been set out. What about vaccinations or what about the role for pharmacists? In the first place, when are you being vaccinated in the pharmacies? Um, like that, um, we are um, in, in, in the top layer after, after, after hospitals um, and we hope to get the vaccine soon. I would like to get the vaccine before I start vaccinating the wider population. But um, person, my personal feeling is that there are other individuals that perhaps perhaps the Gardaí, they end up in situations with people who usually, due to the phone call, they're not actually adhering to guidelines. So therefore, there's an increased likelihood of the guards or, or the number of guards getting infected. And also, the guards have been very good in terms of deliveries and visiting um, isolated people and cocooners. So there is an argument um, there for people who cannot, through the course of their work, protect themselves. And that includes SNAs as well, I believe. OK, but you have a situation where the doctors have done a deal that they will be administering the vaccine. What's the situation? Because certainly pharmacies do the flu vaccine. What are you going to be doing in relation to the COVID vaccine? It seems like a very odd decision to have been made. Um, it seems odd that you would restrict a particular group. It has been proven that 
pharmacists um, together with GPs have over the last decade um, increased the uptake of vaccination. We tend to be the first port of call for side effects and for queries because people don't tend to want to bother the doctor, but they've no problem coming in to us. But also um, we have form here in that, in that most pharmacies kept their doors open to the public um, during the pandemic all through the last year. And the stats are there to show that we have been opened more and more accessible. So there's a trust piece there. I don't know the logic, but perhaps um, the plan as it's set out hasn't taken into account the fragility of the market in terms of when supply will come on. So, for example, if the Astra vaccine or if, this, if the Astra vaccine only is licensed, if it becomes only licensed for under 65s, well, you know, then what happens? Do we do we shift um, the tiers? Do we do the under 65s if we don't have supply? Very briefly, if there was one thing, as a former politician, if there was one thing you were going to tell the government it should do now differently, what would it be? Just um, close down the borders, restrict movement and stop introducing new infection. It's the only way to control this. We cannot put people through another year. But is it easier to say before. that outside of politics than it was to say it when you're within the system? No, no, I, I, I never um, shied away from saying exactly um, what I wanted. But then why aren't there politics. more people saying it, you reckon, within the system at present? Um, I do think there are people, many people within the system. The opposition are very much for it. There's a lot of people, even in government, that are for a zero COVID policy. That's all we have time for tonight. Our thanks to Kate O'Connell for joining us and all our guests throughout the programme. I'll be back on radio tomorrow and back here tomorrow night at 10 o'clock. Until then, stay home, stay safe and a very good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 